and welcome to The Juice and the Squeeze. I'm Julia Strand, here as always with my co-host, Jonathan Peel. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, Julia. Was that your phone? So today, it, it was, I'm, I'm, tra- I'm silencing it, I'm sorry, okay. I, I forgot to put it on Do Not Disturb, but I'm doing it right now. <laughs> do it again. <laughs> All right, here we go, for real this time. Hello, and welcome to The Juice and the Squeeze. I'm Julia Strand, here as always with my co-host, Jonathan Peel. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, Julia. So today, we are going to give the people what they want and respond to two listener inquiries. Um, the first is somewhat lighthearted, but I take it very seriously. And the second will be the, the main topic of our show. So in last week's episode, I was talking about um, uh, people in research stealing your ideas, and I meant to say get scooped. And I accidentally said, get spooked instead. Um, probably because it's Halloween time and I'm kind of Halloween obsessed. Um, and so one of our wonderful listeners, uh, heard that and requested an entire episode where I just talk about Halloween. And I said, I wasn't quite up for doing that, but, but we could give Halloween a little bit of time here at the start of this episode. So as you may know, it's almost Halloween time. Although, in our house, Halloween starts on October 1st. Uh, So, I've always been super into Halloween. I threw, like, complicated, ridiculous parties and made over-the-top costumes, even when I was a kid. Um, And since I have been a grown-up who gets to make my own, like, rules about Halloween and the house and how it all works, um, I've I've set myself some rules... I was going to say guidelines, but no, the rules about, uh-huh. like, when Halloween starts and when it ends. So we do Halloween the entire month of October. So on October 1st, I start decorating everything. Um, and then I also take everything down on November 1st. Um, the, the way I do our house is, like, way more overboard than anybody else in the neighborhood does. And I'm just, I feel a little bit like the weird eyesore of the neighborhood. And so I want to be really sure it doesn't drag on for, for more, than, more than a month. More than a month, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. One time, one year, I was putting out those, like, big, fake, stretchy spider web things on the bushes out in front of my house, um, and one of my sweet neighbors, whose lawn is always perfect and who never forgets to bring their trash cans in at night and just is a really wonderful neighbor in all the ways, um, <laughs> walked across the street and said, oh, hey, I just thought I'd uh, offer you some help getting all that trash out of your bushes. <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 I am deliberately putting this trash into my bushes. <laughs> And, and then they walked away. <laughs> so I, 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 no, they, I, I do have a question for you. Do you put, yeah. like, does everything go up on October 1st? Or is it like a gradual process where you're allowed to start, but it takes a while to get, to get, you know, all the, all the bits and pieces in a row? Yeah, the latter. Yeah, okay. The latter. So I start October 1st, but then it takes, it takes a while. If I, like, could take off the first week of October, like, if I could take that off from work and just do everything... I would be I would be delighted to, but usually it just has to kind of you know, you know mm-hmm. it, it, it straggles along as I have free time. Mm-hmm. Um, so the house transforms from our normal house into Stransylvania. Can you put in like a spooky audio effect when I say that? So it's like Stransylvania. Thank you. Okay. Um, and so we like decorate a ton inside and outside. Um, in years when there isn't a plague, I throw a big uh, a big Halloween party, big costume party. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, we try to see how many trick or treaters we can get. My, my goal is always to make the house scary enough 
that it scares at least a couple of kids and they're like reluctant to come up to the door. But I don't want it to be so scary that, you know, lots of kids are scared of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so a couple of years ago, I upgraded to two fog machines, spooky music, a million decorations. Um, wait, 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 you upgraded I, to two fog machines from how many? I make one. Oh, for, well, from one fog <laughs> okay. machine. So that now I can have a fog machine doing a blanket of fog on the ground and another one up on the balcony spewing fog I see. out yeah. over the balcony. Okay. Um, I try to carve at least a dozen pumpkins in addition to the fake pumpkins that I have and can carve all year long. Um, I'm not going to hit the dozen mark this year. <clears throat> the pandemic hits us in all kinds of ways. Um, but I'm also super into carving pumpkins cause I, I have this side hobby that we'll probably talk about sometime, which is making sculptures out of, out of books. And so I do this like other kind of carving, um, as my art. Uh, but a lot of the skills actually transfer to carving pumpkins. Mm-hmm. So I'm very into that as well okay. for people who are getting ready to carve their pumpkins this year. Um, oh, this is fun. I'm actually getting to, I'm, I'm getting to share advice on the show and share my knowledge with a wider audience. Uh-huh. I'm not, perfect. Okay. Yep. Um, You will read a lot of things on the internet about how you can preserve carved pumpkins. You will read things about having desiccants to keep them from getting dried out, or things about sprays, hairspray, Vaseline. The answer, the true, the sad truth is that none of those things work. And once you carve a pumpkin, it starts to rot very quickly. So I don't start carving pumpkins until until one week before Halloween. So I try to just like actually like prep my classes for the last week of October ahead of time so that then I can, you know, focus on on pumpkins during that week. Um, and you just, you have, you have to wait. There's nothing else to be done. Um, there are, if you, if you don't carve all the way through the skin, if you just do kind of like bar relief engraving on them, those keep a lot longer, but like classic jack-o'-lantern, you know, big triangles, like cut through the pumpkin. You really can't expect those to look decent after more than a week or 10 days. Mm -hmm. Halloween is the best. It's the best because it's spooky and it's fun and it's exciting. And when you decorate, it's not supposed to look fancy. It's not like, you know, Christmas or something where your table runners are supposed to match your whatever. Like, if you hang up your decoration and you hang it up crooked, that's awesome. Like, it's it's even spookier that way. Um, and one of the things I love doing on Halloween uh, is when I'm decorating inside, I'll take spooky decorations in our house and I'll just like regularly move them around or put them in unexpected places so that when I come around a corner, I or, you know, my husband or Violet or any of the people who live with us uh, will like come around a corner and see a spider where there didn't used to be one and like have some actual good little jumps. It's very fun. <laughs> I got, I've got a bunch of like big rats <laughs> and I like moving those around the kitchen and like having one behind the toilet or something so that uh, it's fun and exciting for everyone. Your, your kids aren't traumatized by this? They love it. I like every year, every year I'm like, oh, is this going to be the year that like they get scared of skulls and I can't decorate or something? Mm-hmm. But I ease them into it um, starting when the first Halloween catalogs arrive, which happens in about August, um, kind of mid-August is when the catalogs start coming. And so we look at the catalogs together because at that point, it's just like looking at pictures on a page and I'll say like, oh, look at this silly skeleton. Isn't it so silly? And I'll be like, oh, this is a fun witch. You know, do you think we should get this one or whatever? Um, and then I also start showing them pictures of them interacting with the decorations from last year. Mm-hmm. So they're like, oh, I remember when we put the witches up, then we get to pretend to do ring around the rosy with them or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so that's cute. Um, and then when it's time to like start bringing stuff out, I like really talk it up. We have like a, a calendar that counts down to 30. And so it counts down 
um, from 31. And so it's like the kids get to turn it and, you know, and I'll be like, let's go in the basement and you can pick out one decoration to bring upstairs today. And they get, they get really into it. I don't do anything that's like animatronic or makes noises because that would scare them. So I'm like cautious about choosing things that I don't think will scare them, Mm -hmm. but they get super into it. Like they take the little skeletons and they dress them up and they like put them down for naps and put blankets over them Aww. and pretend to feed them. And it's very cute. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm a little worried they're going to like turn out to be, I don't know, like Marilyn Manson. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, it's fine for now. It's okay. been pretty great. Also, I let them name some of the like really big decorations. So we have a couple of like big, um, uh, aerials. So like things that are suspended. Um, so we have some that are suspended from trees and then we have a bunch that are suspended, like that, that, um, are on, are on lines that run from the balcony or from like a, one of the house windows out to a tree so that they can be like, you know, big in the air up like 12 feet above the yard. And they have named the big ones. Barney, an English muffin, <laughs> and then the big display of witches are called Princess Skeleton and Princess Eyeball and Princess Spider. Okay, and you know that that helps the kids named all of those. So, um, yeah, they get super into it. Mm-hmm. Are do you like do do movies? <laughs> well, do you, are do movies play into this at all? Do you, do you like scary movies or like you know or or campy scary movies or anything like that? I do like scary movies. I don't like scary movies that make me feel scared in my life after the movie is over. Mm -hmm. So I really like the feeling of like being scared during a scary movie, but I don't like scary movies where this, where they're set in situations that are a lot like my life, Mm -hmm. because I don't want to like be super scared that Mike Myers is going to come into my kitchen when I go downstairs to get a drink of water. Mm -hmm. But like scary stuff that's like fantasy scary or set in other times or, you know, Mm -hmm where it's not nice 30 something college professors getting murdered or things like that. Uh (laughs) Um, then I feel more okay about those. I hate scary movies, but I love clue. And so even though it's not a Halloween movie clue, because it's not really a scary movie, right. But clue is like my, if if you ask me to watch a, a, a scary Halloween ish movie, it would be clue. And there's also good movies that are like, halloween adjacent mm-hmm. you know that are like set around halloween time or something that have that kind of spooky vibe but aren't actually super scary i don't like stranger things or you know mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. like that yeah. um so halloween it's the best it's so fun i also i have a bunch of like halloween dresses and halloween um skirts and jewelry and stuff and it's it's super ridiculous to buy clothing that you can only wear for one month out of the year um but it's really fun. And I make, boy, and when I teach in October, all of my examples, I just taught about construct validation. And in order to teach about it, I came up with a 13 item Likert scale uh, to measure whether or not someone has Halloweenophilia. Ooh. And the students had to figure out like, hmm, how would you measure the convergent and discriminant validity of this scale? Uh-huh. And it was very fun. Nice. So, <laughs> so Halloween candy uh, favorite candy, least favorite candy, and what do you what do you end up hang, you know, handing out usually? Yeah, so we give out um, the the uh, snack size, not fun size. The fun size are the ones that are just like square, and the snack size are the ones that are mm-hmm. like a third of a regular size candy bar. Yep. Um, I like giving out handfuls of the snack size of like the good ones of like uh, Snickers and Milky Way mm-hmm. and Hundred Grand um, and Twix. Uh, and, and, and then just giving them out in big handfuls. Mm-hmm. We last year got 187 trick-or-treaters, which is pretty awesome. I think, you know, 
we're not going to actually hand out candy this year. I'm just going to put a big cauldron out front and people can get it if they happen to be out. But, um, uh, I, I really want to go to like full size candy bars. Ooh. I feel like that's really what's next for our wow. house. Um, <laughs> you, you would it, have it, more than 180. I mean, in non COVID times, I yeah. feel like you would be a destination house. It does turn into kind of an expensive habit. Uh-huh. So we got to, you know, think uh-huh. a little bit about our priorities, right. but, um, uh, but actually, okay. So friend of the show commonly mentioned, uh, Violet, who, um, Violet Brown, who lives with us now a, a while ago, she was at a bar and she was talking to some people, uh, in St. Louis and, uh, and they said, oh yeah. And it was like April or something. And they said, we're in town for a Halloween convention. And Violet was like, oh, my friend Julia is super into Halloween. She really decorates and throws a big party every year. And they said, yeah, that's how we started, too. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute. There's another level of There's a whole this? other level. Uh-huh. Yeah. So there is. There's like the home haunters get really serious. You know, they're the people who like literally turn their houses into spiders and, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so post-pandemic goals, maybe. Uh, it's good to know you haven't like you know reached the apex yet you you still have somewhere to go Mm -hmm. yep there's there's always more to be done that is the lesson to take away dear listener (laughs) well anyway i i wish i was in your neighborhood because i would definitely come over and take a large handful of your candy (laughs) and and a picture of your house in the neighborhood are welcome to Uh yep um and we'll i'll we can post a link to some pictures perfect that'd be great awesome Oh, All right, so by the way, seven, wait, wait, oh, wait, wait, yeah. before uh, we, we go, go on, where would people find the links from today's show? Juiceandsqueeze.net slash 32. That's the one. That's the one. All right. So this, so uh, thank you, dear listener, for making that suggestion that we talk about this. Um, the second suggestion um, that we got came by email and it was one that really struck our fancy. Um, I will, I will read the email. Um, Dear Julia and Jonathan, lots of nice things about you. Thank you very much. Okay. For new researchers, grad students, and postdocs, how would you recommend finding your niche in the field? When you're doing a PhD, you have some academic freedom, but often end up doing research based on the resources and interests of your supervisor's lab. Many PhD students also have multiple projects, sometimes with quite an eclectic research program. As you move from an early career researcher to a faculty member, you're asked to create your own research program. How do you decide on what you want to specialize in and how do you narrow your focus? Um, so this is a this is a great question. And Jonathan, and I, I um, both really liked it because it's uh, it's one of the things that we try to talk about on the show, which is something that it's really important to figure out how to do in your career and is not often talked about. Uh, and people typically get very little guidance on. So we all just kind of stumble our way into it. Um, or, or don't. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot to unpack here. Um, where to start? Well, I, I'll start because I, this is something I still struggle with. Um, and I think, you know, from a big picture, part of this comes back to who is your audience. And in a way, I think we can all have um, different kind of different niches depending on who we're talking to, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. if I'm talking to people, if I go to a conference where everyone does speech perception, my niche cannot be speech perception. My niche has to be something more specific, like listening effort. But even that, you can have conferences of listening effort. And so my niche is like the brain activity 
related to listening effort. But even that, there are people who do that. So then I kind of like, you know, you keep narrowing it a little bit um, more and more refined until you have something where where, where you have some um, uniqueness uh, uh, in the area. But if I'm talking mm-hmm. to like a department of psychology faculty, they could care less about all these distinctions. They're like, oh, you're a speech person. You're a memory person. Mm-hmm. You're a personality person. Um, and so I think, I mean, both levels are important, you know, I think for our own happiness and also for like things like grant writing and manuscript writing. And so I think this kind of interacts with like broader issues of who's your audience and how do you take the work that hopefully you like to do and how do you present it to different, you know, to different groups. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, one of the things that you mentioned kind of also um, uh, brings up is that I think it's safe to say that most academics don't just do one thing. Is that true? Is that mm-hmm. safe to say? I, th- I think um, for the most part. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that that many of us have um, a couple of different lines of work that we're interested in, and sometimes some of those lines get more attention than than others. Um, so, for instance, I'm really interested in audiovisual speech perception, how seeing the talker influences how you hear them, but also on the cognitive resources that are required for processing speech, um, and also on issues related to measurement and how we know what constructs we're measuring or, or not. Um, and so... So if somebody said, what's your thing? I'd say eh, speech, but, um, but I actually end up doing research projects that can look very different from one another because of, because I'm doing many different things. So mm-hmm. I think one answer that may or may not be helpful is you don't have to just do one thing. And, and in fact, I think it is, at least for me, really nice to have multiple different research areas that I'm working in, um, both to prevent boredom um, and because there are things about one area of research that I find really annoying. And it's nice when I go to the other area to be like, yeah, this is how I like doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's it's nice to have relief from that frustration when I do different projects. Um, and also that you never know kind of what's going to work. And so it's helpful to have multiple irons in the fire. I mean, one very practical application of, of this, of, you know, finding your, finding your niche, I think for, for, you know, postdocs, for example, or grad students and postdocs is if you think about giving a job talk. So let's pretend you've applied for a faculty job and you're, you know, preparing your job talk and you're going around to different departments and, and talking about your work. How do you frame it? And, and that seems like, um, well, anyway, it's a really practical application of of this problem. Like that was when I first started worrying about finding my niche. Before that, I was like, I do a bunch of stuff, but it's all kind of related in my mind and who cares? And then I had to put together a job talk and I thought like, you know, oh dear, um, <laughs> PG version, oh dear, uh, what? how do I like summarize this in a way for a broad audience? And I, you know, I struggled with that quite a bit. Um, so, you know, so maybe you and I could each share like what our thought process was doing job talks, understanding they might be for different audiences. Um, So what was that? What was that like for you? Is that a hard transition going from like grad student postdoc to job talk or, or not? Um, Yeah. I mean, I I think I actually noticed it uh, in a more pronounced way when I was writing my third year review prospectus Mm -hmm. um, as a faculty member. Um, Because when I, I think did my job talks and started my faculty position, I was like, I don't know try this speech stuff. And this is an idea in grad school. I didn't have a chance to do this. I'll do that. And what's this thing? Um, but it was when I was writing that, that third year review prospectus that, you know, they were like, what's your research 
what does your research program look like? What are the questions you're trying to ask and the tools you're using? Um, and that was when I was like, okay, what actually do I want to know? What are the things that like unify the projects that I have done so far? Um, and being forced to like sit down and, and think about that was, was when it kind of started to come together of like, oh yeah, this is the big question. And, even, and all these projects, even though they're not exactly related, are all kind of chipping away at this, this big question, for mm-hmm. instance. Um, so that's, yeah, that's that's the, the moment when I was like, oh, this actually kind of looks like a research program. Mm-hmm. And not just me being a mad scientist in my lab coming up with random ideas. Right. I, I think, you know, for me, I, mean, I, I had the, the, the epiphany or the realization that I had to think about this when I was putting together a a job talk. But up until that point, I just, I just said yes to everything I thought was interesting and no to the stuff that wasn't. And so I had a bunch of different projects that I I thought were cool, but I hadn't really thought about how they fit together. And so I I think, you know, we might come back to this, but I think that made, um, that gave me some challenges in some ways, but also, you know, I I always, I still think if I had some missed opportunities because, um, because I wasn't as focused on what I wanted to know. So I tended to go more broad as opposed to mm-hmm. narrow in, in my research. And um, well, anyway, I guess there's pros and cons, but I sort of started to become aware that there might be cons to that approach. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think for me, um, you know, we'll talk more about the job talk stuff in a minute, but the other thing that really helped me was when I started writing five-year grants. And so, mm-hmm. you know, all of a sudden, instead of being like, well, what should I work on for the next month? It was like, well, what should my lab work on for five years? Uh, it was very intimidating, but it, it kind of forced me to think more big picture, which I found to be helpful. So I think, yeah. I, I guess, you know, I'm kind of meandering through here, but I think I'm kind of getting at, there are two points. There's like a practical point of, I think, we need to present ourselves as having a niche of some sort, whether or not we feel that in our heart. But I think that's, it has like practical advantages, but actually it can also, um, I think there's some benefits to science to thinking about a big picture and sort of the trajectory of our work, you know, lasting beyond a few months and sort of, you know, that helps us decide what projects to work on. Mm-hmm. I mean, so something that was also helpful to me um, which I often find helpful in different situations is to try to think about uh, if I go to a talk, whether it's an official job talk or just a, a good science talk from someone in the field, you know, what distinguishes the talks I like from the talks I don't like um, and, and, and skipping over lots of other factors. Cause that's a very complicated question. And I'm sure there are like, I have my own biases that, that come into it, but, but one kind of talk that is seems less often successful is someone who shows up and tries to cram in 40 minutes every study they've done in the last five or 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. So going a million miles a minute, lots and lots of details, and and I, I often get lost. Um, and this is relevant because, because as a postdoc on the job market, I felt like I had to, I was worried about like being competitive. And I felt like I, part of me felt like I really had to cram in every study that I did. And like, okay, I did five, I have five big papers and they must all fit into the same narrative. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I, you know, so, so yes, good to talk about all the things you've done, but also kind of forcing everything into a narrative, I think is often not helpful. Um, mm-hmm. And oftentimes the talks that I enjoy the most, you know, especially if it's a field that isn't something I'm an expert in, which is most of the time for department talks and for job talks and things are when 
someone takes the time to explain a really cool idea and then tells me about some data where I can afterwards, I feel like I understood what they were looking at and I can sort of, you know, kind of understand the big questions and, and the paradigm and so on. And so usually that ends up being like fewer experiments, right? And so, so that could be like one paper from your PhD or postdoc that was like super influential and it's going to influence the way you go in the future. Or it could be five papers if all of your stuff was like on a, on a really related area, you know, so it's not so much like don't talk about all your work, but it's like, well, prioritize. Um, one way to think about it is kind of prioritize communication and your audience understanding what you're talking about first and then worry about like trying to cram in all the stuff you've done. Yeah. So, so part of this is about like, you know, how do you, how do you explain what your, what your focus and your like identity as a researcher is? Um, but, but even before that, um, like, let's say hypothetically, a new grad student joined the lab and, or a new postdoc joined the lab and the, the PI said, here are 15 projects that you could conceivably work on. Which of these do you want to work on? Um, and that's not exactly how decisions mm-hmm. are usually presented to people about research early, you know, but, but, um, but, but there are, there are, um, you know, there are choices that, that we all make early on. Um, and so the things that, that I think would be useful to think about <clears throat> as you're like deciding which topics to pursue and which projects to focus on and so forth. Um, one is like, does it make your brain feel good? Like, are you just excited to figure this out? Um, so for me, uh, I am I am fascinated by the fact that we can understand spoken language, right? Right now, you've got sound waves tumbling out of your computer speakers, your earbuds, whatever. And those sound waves are hitting your eardrums. And somehow that is leading to an electrochemical cascade in your brain that is causing you to have ideas. And you are processing hundreds of words per minute and by speakers with different accents and without pauses in between the words. And that the, the task of recognizing spoken language is should be incredibly difficult. And yet here you are doing it instantlessly, instantly and, and what feels like effortlessly. Um, and so I want to know how we're doing that. Like, I find that to be a super fascinating puzzle because here's this thing that should on the face of it be hard. And most of us report most of the time that listening to speech feels like it's really easy. And we don't even, we're not even explicitly taught how to do it. We just figure it out. So I am, I want to keep studying that for the rest of my life because I want to know how it works. And we figure out a little, you know, more and more with every study, but like, I just want to know how it works. Mm -hmm. So I think having something that you are, that, you know, that just makes you excited. You want to learn more about it. Like that's, that I think is, um, can, can be very helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, a second big consideration is how does this help the world and people around you and you know what are the what are the consequences that can come of it. Um this is something that I didn't think about at all early on and I and I wish I had. Um I feel like I was, you know, in in graduate school um uh to be clear, basic science even if it doesn't have clear real world practical applications right now is still very important because you never know where it's going to go and you never know the, the consequences that it's going to have. Um, and I think a lot of us feel a sense of satisfaction if there is, you know, if, if, if the vision of where it could potentially go is clear. Um, and I didn't think about that at all. Um, as I have thought about it more, um, you know, there are certainly lots of ways that the, 
work that I do has could have, you know, interesting and practical real world applications. Um, um, but I, I guess I kind of stumbled into that. Like there are, um, and, and, and it's a thing that I wish I had been a bit more mindful about early on. Mm-hmm. So is it fun for you? Does it help the world? Another one that I also didn't think about early on, and I wish someone had mentioned earlier, <clears throat> is what are the, what's the like equipment protocol setups, um, participant groups, et cetera, that you need to do this work? So um, I, uh, the, the work that I do, I can do super cheaply and I can train undergraduates how to do it really easily. And so it is very well suited to being at a small liberal arts college. Um, whereas Jonathan does things with like, uh, I don't know, fancy brain scanners and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. My understanding is those cost a lot of money. It turns out they do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, so um, he can also answer really cool questions about brains, um, which I which I can't answer. But it also means that, like, his program just needs a lot more money to stay afloat than mine does. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, although, although it's hard to know, probably early on in graduate school, like, what kind of job you want to have eventually, um, it's it's worth you know, that, that, that's something that is worth considering. I mean, something that I think, you you know, we've sort of like, I think unintentionally highlighted, but there are different, um, there are different points along your career where you can think about your research area and, and sort of those have different implications. And so, mm-hmm. and so what you've been talking about more, um, I think really helpfully is like, you know, for most of us, we have some autonomy um, every year and what research we work on. And, and that typically increases as we get more advanced. And so, you know, as a graduate student, you may be constrained by what your advisor works on, but you, you may have some say in what specific project you work on and then, you know, picking a postdoc. And if you get a faculty job, what you work on, you, you may have different amounts of freedom. So, so there's a question of like, of all the questions in the world, what should you work on? And then I think, um, what I was sort of focusing on is like, if you've done a bunch of stuff and it's too late, like right now I have to write a talk in the next two days and I can't change what I've done. How do I synthesize what I've done? Because there's different ways to frame it. Right. And so I think Mm -hmm. both are, I mean, both are important. And so I think um, like for, you know, coming at it from my perspective, if you think, you know, Oh, I would like to talk about X, Y, and Z at a talk someday. Well, if that, if someday is like a year or two or five from now, you have a chance to like do some new research you could talk about, right? So you could actually mm-hmm. change what you study and that can be really useful, like our useful way to think about it. But, or if, if you're stuck with what you have, you might think about how to frame it in a different way. Um, mm-hmm. Or, you know, you know, alternatively, if you have no idea what you want to talk about someday, but then you should think about, well, there's only so many hours in the day or the year and, and what gives me you know, if we can Marie Kondo our, um, our research, like, well, what gives me joy in my research? Mm-hmm. Right. And because there's lots of stuff that I could do, why not focus on the stuff that seems to be the best fit for what I want to do? Mm-hmm. And I think bo- like both of them, they're not mutually exclusive, but just at different points in our career, we might tend to focus on one or the other. And that, and that the focus of your career and your research program is likely to change too, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think um, um, the idea of like, I will find my niche and then I will have arrived um, is, is not how it often, often works. Mm-hmm. So the stuff that I am focusing on now is very different than what I was focusing on 
in the first year of, um, of my faculty position. Uh, and I think that's really common. And that's, I mean, that's one of the things that's rad about being an academic, mm-hmm. right? It's like, mm-hmm. what do I want to study? Mostly I get to decide that. Um, and so, so I think it's, I mean, I think it's good to have a vision and to figure out how to, um, have some kind of unification between your different research areas rather than just doing a bunch of random one-off studies. Um, but also not to let that let you feel too, um, boxed in. So, yeah, so that actually, you know, maybe we should have started with this, but if we, if we zoom out and go big picture, like, why do we even have a niche? Yeah. So you got to specialize because it's not Leonardo da Vinci times when it's possible for one person to know everything. Um, right. That like, it's great to be well-rounded and there is so much to know and there's so much like specific techniques. You got to like have, have some focus. Um, I think it's also important for science that we have niches that we, uh, um, you know, that, that in order to have more kind of systematic and programmatic research, um, that for instance, if you, if, if all of us did a bunch of random one-off studies that weren't grounded in theory, uh, or built directly on our previous work, um, we're much less likely to find, for instance, false positives in the literature, right? If we're just mm-hmm. like, let's do this over here and this over here and this over here. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I say, this is the problem I want to tackle, I'm going to do six studies that all try to like answer questions around this particular topic. Um, then we're much more likely to, you know, try to replicate work that we've, that we've already done and build on it and build in conceptual replications and things like that. Um, and so I think it's important, it's important for science that we focus because the science tends to be better uh, than if we're just randomly hopping around doing buffet style research. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you um, think, do you think but, like calling it a niche in some way is a disservice? Because that to me, like there are little, in my own mind, I have little tones of like marketing in a way or like, um, a, a little bit self-serving. Like I have to find my niche where I can thrive because there aren't other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I yeah. think what you, what you which I think is also true by the way, but, 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 um, so if, if I, if I choose to study the thing that there are already 20 established, smart, productive people doing, you know, it might be harder than if I pick something where, where there's no one else doing it, but people are equally interested. Right. So mm-hmm. I think there, there is a little bit of a, you know, a selfish motivation there too, but but I'm contrasting that with what I hear you saying, which is if you put that aside, just doing good science, like maybe instead of saying a niche, it's, we just say it's a programmatic research, right? So why do yeah. we have programmatic research in science? It's because you know you every everything takes longer than we think, and we learn things at each step of the way. And if you kind of jump around from topic to topic, you don't benefit from that. And so mm-hmm. you know by having a research program, you are able to you know, really to discover more and and be more accurate, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also, um, you know, I feel like when, when people talk about having a niche, it's also so that, you know, you're like at the top of somebody's mind when they're like, Oh, we're Mm -hmm. putting together a symposium on this. And I know so-and-so does great work on this particular topic. And so you, um, people may feel like, Oh, I don't want to just be like another person who does speech. I want to be the person who does this particular thing. Mm-hmm. So that then when you need somebody to talk about that particular thing, you know, you can come to me. Right. Um, but but one of the things that I also, like, have tremendous respect for are the researchers who are doing science that is not like a particular, like, 
you know, um, it's not someone who I would immediately think of when I think we're doing a symposium on this, whatever, um, but are doing just like really good, thorough, open, methodical work. Um, Mm -hmm. And I feel like a, a, a really good niche too is like doing research that you're interested in and just not doing it in a half-assed way, right? Like just mm-hmm. doing really good science. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, cause I, I, like I can, I can think of several researchers who I know who, if they're like, what do you study? I'm like, well, I think they kind of study this thing, but man, they always share their stuff and they have really clear documentation and I've used their code when I've tried to, you know, when I run into similar issues and things like mm-hmm. that. So um, I think it can also be, you know, um, the question is also like, what am I known for? Mm-hmm. And you can be known for things other than just, the, the actual topic of the research you do, right? You can be mm-hmm. known for how well you do it and how well you communicate it and things like that as well. Mm-hmm. That's like a multidimensional niche, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I mean, mm-hmm. which, which I, I, I said a little tongue in cheek, but I think it's true. And there are people who are known for, um, as you said, sort of methods, whether that's sort of open sharing or advocacy for a certain point of view or mm-hmm. whatever that kind of transcends their specific topic. And some people mm-hmm. like, do more methods stuff and don't have a specific topic. And some people have a topic, but, but maybe they're better known for the other stuff. Mm-hmm. So when, when in our careers, does it make sense to th- to start thinking about this? Yeah. So I think like early on in grad school, the important things to be thinking about are like figuring out the research areas that you're excited about. Um, and just like figuring out how to be an academic, right. Figuring out how to balance working and sleeping and navigating the interpersonal dynamics and seeking out people who can help and support and mentor you. Um, and, and really early on, I think it's, I think it's, um, it's unreasonable to say like, oh, you should be thinking about the kind of job you want and the kind of resources it will require and blah, blah, blah. Um, so, so early, I think it is thinking about what you're excited about, um, and trying to collect varied experiences so that you can figure, you know, so you can try things out, right? So mm-hmm. if early on you're doing some behavioral work and then there's an option to do neuroimaging or something like that, um, you know, to, to take those opportunities to try and build up kind of a, a varied skill set early on, um, because that's how you figure out what you like, right? Is by trying stuff. Mm-hmm. And also focusing on methodological rigor statistical training, programming, you know, mm-hmm. the fundamentals where regardless of what research you end up doing, um, you'll have the tools in place to do it well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think for most people, some people, you know, ever since they were four years old, they wanted to study a thing and now they're in graduate school studying the thing and they're going to go on, you know, as a faculty member and study the thing. Um, and, and you, you know, you hear about these people, but I, I think that's, well, first of all, that you wasn't me. Them, I don't know. Let's pretend. Let's pretend that for a small number of people, that's true. I, I think it's not true for most people. Um, and I, I wouldn't want, I, I think, you know, when you finally get to graduate school, the whole world is open to you, right? I mean, so many, even if you you are sort of committed to a general topic, you've got so many options that I think I, I would sort of be worried, you know, about pressuring someone to kind of think about this too much um, early on. I do think you know, and this is my own bias too. And I think yours a little bit also, Julia, but like thinking about methodological rigor and statistics and transparency and sharing things like those are sort of like, yeah, uh, 
personality is the wrong word, but they're sort of researcher characteristics that will serve you well in any field. And so if that's important behaviors, to you, yes, mm-hmm. yes. So those behaviors, I think you can apply to lots of different places. And that's a good thing to start cultivating early because some of it takes work and some of it takes time and so on. Um, but in terms of like science topic, I think, I think you, you have a few years to think about. I do think, you know, before you do a postdoc is a good time to think about this because, you know, if you're thinking, if you're thinking about staying in academia and thinking about a potential faculty job, then the postdoc sort of, um, if you do a postdoc anyway, you know, it sort of sets you up to give, to be applying for faculty jobs and giving a job talk. And so if you really have no idea what you want to do, I think it can be challenging then to, to think of a direction. So I think it's good to at least consider later on in graduate school, moving into postdoc, moving into faculty. Um, but I think as long as you're sort of within the bounds of what, of what Julia talked about. So, you know, sort of like things you enjoy and things that you, you know, um, find gratifying, right. And, and would be happy doing for a while. You still might have some flexibility. And in that case, I would say there probably isn't a perfect, like it's probably not, if you don't pick the perfect niche that like your career is going to be tanked. It's like, there's probably a bunch of things you could do, but it's useful to think about one so that you can describe your work in an elevator pitch. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that, is that, I kind of, I kind of changed directions in the middle of what I was saying, but is that also <laughs> a good way to think about it? Like, like, <laughs> you know, of, you have got lots of possibilities, but it's still useful to be able to summarize what you do. Yep. Yep. Um, and, and I think it's okay if you can't do that the first year of graduate school, some people can, I never could. Um, but, but that as you get further and further, it's a, it's a useful skill to have and, and sort mm-hmm. of, it probably will change the kinds of projects you work on. As a, you know, since we we tend to be honest on our podcast, Julia, um, I still just say yes to too many projects. And there's stuff that is like, whatever my niche is, I still struggle with that. I still struggle with an elevator pitch. And I still say yes to stuff that probably, by most definitions, is outside of my niche. It's all speech. Mm-hmm. The broad picture mm-hmm. is all, it, it, well, most of it's speech. But, you know, the big picture is fine. But like on the, on the fine level, on the kind of more detailed level, you know. I, I struggle to maintain a focus. So I, I sort of, you know, I can come up with a focus when needed for a talk or a grant application. But if you look at all the stuff I do, it probably all doesn't fit as neatly as some people. Mm-hmm. You know, but also like only parts, the, the reason that we do what we do is only in part based on what makes for a clear trajectory and a mm-hmm. clear story and all of that. And part of it is like, just what do you enjoy doing and sure. what is fun and mm-hmm. important? And, you know, and mm-hmm. like, I think that has, I think that has really great value. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I care much more that I find my work interesting than that it, you know, fit perfectly in a narrative. So I think yeah. that's fine. I'd say don't yeah. beat yourself up about okay. that. Phew. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> well, also, I mean, also, again, do you want to do this project? That's- <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll say yes. Of course. I um, uh, uh, and I'm at the point, of course, I'm aware that, that being, you know, I've been a, I've been at WashU for eight years since so I've, you know, been a faculty member for eight years um, and I'm tenured. And so, so there's a little bit less pressure of the kind that is on uh, early career researchers. Uh, and also I have enough papers that I can, if, if I'm writing, so strategically, if you're writing a grant, if you have no background in a thing, grant reviewers are sometimes skeptical that you can do it, even if you're very capable. And so part of this like niche is for a 
uh, a grant review audience, this is what I think about. I'm in grant writing mode right now. Um, you want to show that you can do a thing. And so, and so I've done enough stuff that I have, you know, I can kind of pick and choose if I need to support that I can do a thing. Um, Mm -hmm. which wasn't true, you know, 10 years ago, it it was harder to do that. Mm -hmm. So there's one more, um, facet that we we've kind of touched on, but I think it might be worth coming back to, to be explicit. And and again, I, I, you can tell I'm, I'm kind of drawn to the practical side of this. Like if you're applying for a postdoc or applying for a faculty job, like how do you present your work? Because I think in some ways, like I'm hoping that you, everyone internally is happy with the research they're doing, but then, you know, is worried about how to, how to present it to other people. Um, I think to some degree, I think we don't always have to be, we don't always have to have a, a long track record of multiple publications to forecast where we want to go. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, if you're, if you're applying for a faculty job, when you give a talk, you know, do you need, do you, would you rather say, oh, I did these 10, five papers on this topic and I'm going to keep doing it if you hire me? Or would you say, look, I haven't published on this, but I had this really cool idea and I'm going to tell you about it. Um, now, if you if you've literally done nothing on a topic, that's probably not going to go over very well. But my point is, you don't. It's okay to switch directions, and I think there's some there's a little bit of a um, unknowable bar of like you've done enough that you can convince people you can do it, which I know is mm-hmm. not very helpful. But in other words, if I've been doing, um, um, you know. Uh, pers- how people perceive upside down T's and visual perception for, for five years. And I, and I, then I think I would rather do something else. If I can talk about a different topic in a, in a talk and make people excited, like getting people excited can be better than accurately reflecting the last X years of your work. And so, mm-hmm. so there is a balance there, but I guess I'm just saying, you know, as a postdoc, if you, if you have one really cool study that is your passion and you love it, and that's what you want to do, you, you might want to consider talking about that or framing your other work in relation to that, as opposed to being like, well, I have five papers on the upside down T, so I guess that's what I do. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think it's just like not being afraid to kind of reinvent ourselves. Um, even when we're junior, I, I think can be, can be a pretty powerful tool. I mean, with caveats that you have to be a little bit mindful about how you do it. I don't know. Would, mm-hmm. Am I explaining that well? What do, what do you think yeah, about yeah, this? Yeah, no, I see yeah. what you mean. I guess the very last thing we should talk about is how we pronounce this word. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we decided before recording that it was niche. So there is debate, says the internet. Merriam-Webster says you can do it either way. So we said niche. As opposed to niche. Yep. So, okay. So (laughs) how (laughs) do I want to go? How do I want to go on the usage stack exchange? Um, It's originally a word borrowed from, from French. Um, In English, you can do either. Yeah. Okay. Um, I hope we don't get any hate mail. (laughs) Okay. Well, it just, it just means we, we we chose the wrong niche for our listeners. If that's what we're, that we're choosing. (laughs) Then it's just then it's just a homage to the word niche. <laughs> Can you put in like a bump and a ching sound effect there too, please? <laughs> All right, thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. All right, thanks, everyone. And, uh, we'll 
Talk to you next time. All right. Bye-bye. suggest that we stack the bodies in the cellar, lock it, leave quietly one at a time, and pretend that none of this has ever happened. <laughs>